Hey, today I start a new series called All Authority. All Authority. Did you know, we just sang that song, All Authority. Our hearts were moved. My, my heart was moved. But then there's this element where it's like, you know, when it comes to authority, I'm a little cynical. Can I just make that confession to start a series on authority? When it comes to authority, I'm really cynical. I'm cynical in just about every sphere of authority. I question it, even when it comes to myself. So let me, let me set the stage for kind of where we're at with authority today and then move to what Jesus might have to say about authority. What's our problem with authority? Let's start there. Uh, sociologist Charles Taylor in his book, A Secular Age, he says most of us America believe a few simple propositions that seem so clear and self-evident that we scarcely need even to say them. One of those is that authority is inherently suspect. As my kids would say, it's sus. We're cynical about authority. Our, our country is extremely anti-authoritarian. It's actually this, this balance of anti-authoritarian and yet clear government. It's this amazing balance in some ways. But we're at our heart anti-authoritarian. Truman, in his work on our culture, he says the ultimate dynamic driving our secular age is the assertion of our autonomy. We don't want authority outside of us to tell us anything about us. We want to make all our decisions for ourselves. It's oppressive if somebody else out there is trying to tell us what to do. We're anti-authoritarian. We're anti-institutional. Especially when it comes to institutions, we can get really cynical. And it's easy to do. If you just look at some of our institutions like government, I subscribe to the Daily Memphian. So I get regular updates on which government officials are being investigated, which are currently in appeals for their sentencing. It's like, it's easy to be cynical about government. What about schools or, say, seminaries? My seminary, HST, is now in the process of moving from where it's always been over to Cersei. It's easy for me to be cynical about authority. What about employers? your bosses, it's easy to just have a little water cooler huddle and to talk about those in authority or a teacher or maybe most of all a church. Scandals are all over the news. Even today, there was a ministry in Memphis that, that closed and the top person was fired. Authority may actually be a reason that you didn't want to come today because some church or some leader, preacher, pastor, minister, some parent, was felt so out of line with how they were wielding the authority that they were saying was coming from God. Family has authority there too. And I'm not just talking about the teenage angst of like, I'm not going to do what you say. I have a deep cynicism of the way generationally authority has been wielded in my family. Sometimes I've described one part of my family, hope they're not listening, as almost like the godfather, it's not great. And I'm not the only one who's cynical about authority. Our whole culture is cynical when it comes to authority. It's inherently suspect. And so what do we do with all the authorities that we're suspicious of? We want to silence those, but authority in a vacuum is no such thing. Every authority has to be replaced by another authority. So we replace the institutions with the self. The self as authority. The root idea, one scholar says, of modernity is the overturning of all, 
all authority outside the self. We are our own moral authority. You see that word authority has the word author in it. But I was thinking, man, some of us would even question the author. If, if we were reading a book, it's like, I don't think that's what you think it means. I'm like, Well, the author says this. I don't believe him. There's arguments for the nerds out there on like what is canon when it comes to Star Wars. You can't just ask George Lucas because there's all these competing claims. We can't even trust the authors. Can I trust me, though? That's really the question. You see, we want to write our own stories. We want to be the authors of everything that we're doing. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And yet, when it comes to authority and myself, I'm equally cynical about my own capacity to have an unscathed authority. There's this illusion of authenticity. If authority is authenticity and the authority of the self, for the most part, it's actually just a great illusion. Are we even writing our own stories? No, the culture is actually giving us the story. Robert Bella, big sociologist, he says the irony is that just where we modern people think we're most free, we are most coerced by the dominant beliefs of our culture. It's a powerful cultural fiction that we not only can but must make up our deepest beliefs in the isolation of our private selves. He says the reason that you want the authority of a self is actually imposed by the culture around you. Truman, again, the same individuals who never darken the door of a church because they're suspicious of authority, they will line up for days outside of an Apple store to pay an exorbitant sum of money for a minor upgrade to the device they already possess. It's an illusion. You think you're so unique as you like, move away from home and go off to the far-off city to be like secular, along with all the other people who did the same thing. There's whole fashion trends and lines that are like geared towards because it's not just you. It's the whole culture imposing. It's an illusion. You can say you're writing your own story, but you're only saying that because your culture around you says you should write your own story. It's an illusion, but it's also an incoherent piece. Are we even capable of writing our own stories? We hear this when it comes to writing your story. You should trust your feelings. But I feel multiple things. My feelings are filled with contradictions. More than that, my feelings are tremendously shaped by how I slept the night before, by the last time that I ate. My feelings are shaped by the woundings that I carry from childhood, from the educational least Like, can I even process what I'm doing here? All of it is now dependent on me to define my authority, and I, I just need to have a snack and sit down for a minute. Trust your feelings. Follow your heart. Well, last year I wanted this, and now my heart wants this, which, which is truly me. Which authority do I follow? Follow my heart. I'm pulled in two directions in opposite ways all the time. I want a marriage and kids, and I want freedom and sleep. I want a career, and I want to be a nomad who sees the world. I want an A in the class, and I don't want to study the night before. It's like you can't have it all. You, you can't be your own authority in that way. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Nothing illustrates this better than the people who use that. Winston Churchill, 1941, great speech to the House of Commons. I am, we are the master of our fate. We are the captain of our soul. Or Nes Nelson Mandela, when he's in prison, he cites Invictus, this poem. 
But you know who else does? Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. These are his last words before he's executed. It's like, it's so contra. We are just walking contradictions when it comes to our search for authority. Francis Bufford, he writes this, You're a being whose wants make no sense. They don't harmonize. Whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want not to at the very same time. You're equipped, you realize, more for farce or even tragedy than happy endings. You want to write your story? Are you sure? Keller, he was giving that quote from Francis Buffer. <laughs> he says, if you don't believe this, you must be very young. <laughs> Spufford again. What we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and to stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy. It's our active inclination to break stuff, stuff here including promises, relationships we care about, our own well-being, and other people's. You see, our problems with authority aren't just out there. We're suspicious, we're cynical, and probably rightfully so. But our suspicion and cynicism is also in here. We're walking contradictions. They're all broken and sinful. And then when we look in the mirror, we realize we're all broken and sinful too. And so this is quite a conundrum when it comes to authority. If there's no vacuum where some authority has to be given to someone, someone gets to say, you can either look outside or you can look inside, and it seems like neither voice can be trusted. So what do we do? To whom shall we go? Is there anyone left? Of course, we're here on a Sunday. You know I'm going to say Jesus. But that's part of the problem, is that Jesus makes unsettling claims about authority. Unsettling, especially in our culture that's so anti-authoritarian. What do we do with this man who claims to have all authority if in our heart of hearts we're suspicious of it? Today, I actually want to explore that idea that Jesus makes these unsettling claims of authority and why that might actually be good news. It might be good news because if all the institutions are broken and fractured in some ways, and our world is in deep need of someone to rewrite a story, and if we and our own selves are also broken and fractured, and we are in need of someone to rewrite our stories, then we actually need someone who has authority, but who doesn't wield it like we do or like the world does. So let's look at Jesus and his claims to authority in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be here all month. Matthew thinks that this word authority is key. In the whole Old Testament, there's 11 times where the word authority gets used. Matthew alone uses the word authority 11 times. It's like, this is the lens to see Jesus. This is the last thing Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is how he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount with this kind of, this guy has authority. What do we do with this? He, he goes out of his way to show that he's demonstrating authority. So today is just part one where we'll look at the author of all authority, 
Um, but let me just show you kind of textually where we're going to be today. Matthew, I've, I've showed this before, but it's really interesting to me how structured Matthew is. Uh, Kelsey and I were watching The Chosen recently, and John is one of the gospel writers. He's a character in the show, and he's, like, not really taking down details. He's like, you don't have to go into detail. You don't have to go into detail. And they're like, why not? Don't the details matter? He's like, Matthew's got that covered. <laughs> Ma- Matthew is so organized. Take a look at this, Matthew 4.23. There's just a key, couple of key words. He went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom, and he was healing every disease and sickness among the people. So that's, that's really the n- in, near the end of chapter 4. But then if you look at near the end of chapter 9, you see basically the same thing. So Jesus went around teaching, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Do you see that these are, sometimes I call them bookends? These are like the, the shelf. There, let me picture it for you. So what we see here is the beginning and the end of a major section in Matthew where he's going to look at authority through two main lenses. The first is the lens of the words that he speaks. He has words of authority. And that's what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7. And then he keeps using this language of authority in chapter 8 and 9, except he moves from the mountain to the valley. He moves from teaching to what one scholar, he calls him the teaching Jesus and then the touching Jesus, and you'll see why. He, he's touching lots of people in totally appropriate ways. Don't go there. So this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look first at the words of authority of Jesus, how he makes these unique, unsettling claims to authority. And then we'll look at the deeds of Jesus and how he shows that he has authority over every sphere of life. Okay, so let's start with those words of authority. And it's just true that Jesus taught with unsettling authority. That if anybody else said what he said and the way he said it, you'd be like, I don't know about this guy. There's only a small list of people who ever spoke, ever spoke with the authority that Jesus claimed for himself. Let me just show in the Sermon on the Mount itself. This is the conclusion of the sermon after he gives the teaching of the kingdom. This is good news. This is how the people respond. He's finished saying these things, and the crowds were amazed at his teaching. What is this guy doing? Why were they amazed? Look, because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Have you noticed how I teach? I give a lot of quotes. I've already given a lot of quotes. The reason is because this is important. I'm not Jesus. (laughs) Jesus gets to speak with authority. I don't. Jesus gets to speak with authority. The scribes and teachers of the law, they don't. All they can do is say, well, the best scholars say this, and the commentaries over here say this. We can't speak with the authority of the author, but Jesus was. It's unsettling. Let me just show you a few instances. Look at his language of I and me and my, just in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come for that. I I have not come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. Jesus, you came to fulfill the law and the prophets? He says, yes. Yes, I have. He goes on. You have heard it said, then he'll quote the Old Testament. He'll quote Moses. He'll quote Scripture. But I say, but I say, but I tell you, but I tell you. Fifteen times the Sermon on the Mount uses this phrase, I tell you. Who is this guy? Why does it matter what he's telling us? 
Whatever we say, we have to say that he claims authority unlike anyone of his generation. He, he claimed it. He spoke as someone who says he has authority, as if he was the decisive arbiter, not one scholar among many. Whenever he quotes scripture, it's only to reinterpret it. Instead of saying, thus says the Lord, he says, thus says me. I, me, my. Look at how he concludes it, though. This is kind of the final movement of the sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus is saying, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Look how egocentric it seems to be. He's saying that I am the judge and the judgment is based on what you did for me. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me. He's not only the judge, he's not only the standard of judgment, he seems to be the reward of judgment. Judgment is separation from him. What is he talking about? At the very least, you have to see that he claimed authority that is culturally unsettling. We can sing about all authority and our hearts may be moved, but then when we hear somebody talk like this, it should give us pause, I think. What do we do with these words of Jesus? I think John Stott, in his reading in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, who does he think he is? This is the question that you should be asking after you, somebody makes those kinds of claims. Frederick Bruner and his, he says this language of I and me and my, it uncovers the sermon's most astonishing dimension that Jesus believes himself to be, as we say in our vernacular, something else. Who but God should talk like this? Who is this man? Richard Bauckham, he says, the only Jesus, he's a historian. He's, he's not speaking as like some interpreter of scripture. He's not a preacher. He's not in a pastor role here. A historian, he says, the only Jesus we can plausibly find in the sources is a Jesus who, though usually reticent about it, speaks and acts for God. So how is it good news that Jesus was claiming to be God and that he ushered in and proclaimed the gospel, the good news of the kingdom? He had these high demands, and he says it's actually, you have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You have to be perfect as your father is perfect. He says you have to your standard of judgment is based on your obedience to me. How is this good news? You see, if it's not true, then it's clearly not good news. He's a nutso, right? <laughs> we'll, we'll talk more about that. If it's not true, then I wouldn't recommend him to anyone. But when somebody claims authority, and if it is true, man, that is good news. That's what we've been actually looking for. So we actually need some way to figure out, is he telling the truth? Does he have the authority that he was claiming for himself? So it's really handy that his authority on the mountain is matched by his mercy in the valleys. That the teaching Jesus immediately moves into the touching Jesus, that what he did wasn't just a claim. In chapter 8, it still uses this language of authority, except it, it moves from words to deeds. So we looked at the unsettling, astonishing claims, but what if he backed it up? Let's look at 
chapter 8 and 9. And this is going to be pretty quick reading. Basically, if you have your Bible open, it's, it's page 833 in the Coffeehouse Bible. We're going to be just walking through quickly every, every story in chapter 8 and 9, which means we can't say a lot about each one, so I'll, I'll try to move fairly quickly. Next story, touching Jesus, right? A leper. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him. Knelt is actually the word proskuneo. That's the word in the New Testament for worship. The leper comes and worships Jesus. Worships the man who's just claiming to be God. <laughs> worships the one who's just said, I'm the judge and the judgment and the reward for judgment. The next guy who sees him worships him. Lord, Lord, he's a, he's a guy. He's here in the flesh. Lord, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. Now, this was startling, not because it was inappropriate, but because he's a leper, and it was totally inappropriate in this culture. Leper can't be touched for a holy man. A holy person can't touch a leper and then go worship. But here, Jesus, holiness flows the other way. And so he says, I am willing, be clean. And immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Next story. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. This is somebody who's a Roman military official in charge of a hundred people, the centurion, that's a hundred people, and so he says, Lord, Lord, I thought, I thought he was just a teacher, now he's Lord again, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly, now the word servant is the word for child, it seems to be his son is at home, he, he says, Jesus, Jesus says, shall I come and heal him, and the centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself and a man under, you see this language of, I know what authority is like. You don't even have to come. All you have to do is say, say the word, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Go, and he goes. You see, he recognizes the authority of Jesus. He didn't just speak with authority until what does Jesus do? He healed him from a distance. Next story. Jesus came into Peter's house, and he saw Peter's mother-in-law. He goes from lepers, who can't go anywhere near the temple, to a centurion who can only go into the Gentile court of the temple. Now he goes to a woman who can only go to the women's court of the temple. He's going in concentric circles, deeper and deeper, but people who still feel excluded from the life of God, even mother-in-laws. Peter's mother-in-law was in there, lying with, in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. And when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word. The centurion was right, not only for his child, but even for the spiritual forces. He healed all the sick. This was to fulfill. Jesus, remember, he was just claiming, I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill, and then he starts doing the thing that he said he was doing. This is fulfilling Isaiah. This is Isaiah 53. This is actually the only time the Gospels quote Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. You see, he's not just claiming it. He, he has authority with his word. He has authority over all sickness, but then if you keep reading, he has authority that goes beyond sickness. The storms. This is a little later in chapter 8. He got into the boat with his disciples and they followed him. And suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. 
Now you may be thinking, God's felt like he's been sleeping on me a lot, but there's something about the peace that Jesus had untouched from the threat of a storm. And so the disciples, they went out and they woke him. And they said, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And he replied, oh, you of little faith, why are you afraid? And then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed at this, and they asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. He's got sickness with a word. He's got storms with a word. He's got the spirits with a word. Look at this one, Matthew 8. This is a good children's bedtime story. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, the two demon-possessed men came from the tombs and they met him. Maybe costumes would help the bedtime story. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. You see, this is power. No one can pass. It reminds me of the Fellowship of the Ring, where Gandalf, he, he encounters these big trolls on a bridge, and all the hobbits and the whole company's terrified, but when Gandalf shows up, things change. What, what do you want to do with us, oh son of God? They, no one could pass, and now they're whimpering and whining, and they say, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Remember, we can't talk about everything, but just notice the authority has shifted from these powerful spirits into this this lowly man. He said to them, go with a word. They came out and went to the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went to the town, reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, And they pleaded with him to leave their region. This is like Gandalf in the Shire. It's like, this guy seems to invite trouble because he has more authority than we know what to do with. Sickness, storms, spirits, but he's got sin too. Look at Matthew 9. It, again, uses this language of authority. He stepped out in the boat and he crossed over to his town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the men, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. They're not wrong. He's claiming to do what only God can do. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain? (laughs) By the way, do you see this? This fellow's blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts. It's like, well, okay. (laughs) Maybe he's not. (laughs) Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heads? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. He says, do you want me to say it or do you want me to prove it? I'll prove it. That's fine. Let's, let's just prove it. I want, to know, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority, authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. He just speaks it. Then the man got up and went home. The thing he speaks is the same thing that the man does. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to, to humans, to a man. So one commentator, this is Bruner again, he says, he can save anything. If you just read Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, it's every sphere of brokenness in the world. We talk about holistic ministry. That's one of our core values as a church. Holistic means the whole gospel for the whole person, for the whole world. And the reason we preach a holistic gospel and a holistic ministry is because that's what Jesus is doing. 
If he has all authority, then it means he has all ministry. He has all healing. He has all the power to put it back together. If you just start at the outside, he can handle the disasters and the storms. If you move to the the fragmentation and the frustration between others. Remember, he moves from leper to centurion to woman, and he's breaking down walls everywhere he goes so that people can be back together. He's, he's taking tax collectors and sinners like, like Levi, and he's saying, that doesn't tell the full truth of who you are. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. You are no longer sinner. You are in my family. He's changing his identity, and he's offering forgiveness. Jesus has the power in his claims, but then he shows it in his ministry. He has the authority to do it all. By the way, Paul Young doesn't. I don't. Your mom and dad don't. Our president doesn't. The Supreme Court doesn't. Your boss doesn't. There is no one who either claims or shows that they have all the authority to put things back together like Jesus. You see, the reason is because Jesus has all authority because he's the author of life. He's showing that I wrote this story. I get get to just speak new parts whenever I want. There, There is no, like, consult with the author where you get to question. He's the author, which means he has the authority. And because he has the authority, it seems to be good news. I kind of want to give an apologetic for for those of us who are a little cynical about authority like me. I just want to kind of turn this over and explore that combination of his claims and his actions and what it might mean. Is Jesus really the author of life with all authority as he claims? Now, this is a crazy thing that I, I really just put together this week. This is a quote from a scholar. He says, only Jesus combines claims of divinity with the most beautiful life of humanity. You see, in all the religions of the world, all the philosophies of the world, there seemed to have only been a handful of people who had enough of a beautiful life to get followers. There's only a few religions that are like gained real traction. There's only a few philosophies that gained real traction. Jesus is in that group. On the other hand, there's only a few people who have ever claimed to be God, who've started kind of religious groups. But most of these, dare say all of these, are just small kind of cult-like groups where they don't go anywhere. See, no religious leader claims to be divine except one. It's Jesus. In the Venn diagram of started a philosophy or religion and claimed to be God, there's only one person in the middle. It's him. A couple of people had such a striking life that people asked, what is this man? The Buddha was one of these. What is he? He seems extraordinary. And Buddha went out of his way to say, I'm not an angel, I'm not a god, I'm a human. You could say the prophet Allah is like one of these. Allah would consider it not Allah, Muhammad. The prophet Muhammad is one of these. He would consider it blasphemy to be considered equal with God, but not this man. There's, there's, a, there's a one-person circle here of someone who claimed 
and start a, and here we are as worshipers of that one. What do we do with this guy? Is he really the one that he claims to be? Now, we have a few choices here. Now, this is a, an old argument from uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Love this book. But he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. He says, that's the sort of thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So Lewis gives us a few categories that I want to kind of bring into the modern world. The first one is this category of liar. Perhaps he's just lying about everything that he claimed. He claimed to speak as one with authority. He claimed to be somebody who was the embodiment of God. He, he claimed to be the judgment and the judge. Maybe he's a liar. Well, the problem with saying that he's a liar is Matthew chapter 8 and 9, when he goes on to do all of the things with a word. You know, in his contemporaries, there are lots of people who met Jesus. None of them, none of them ever said that he didn't do miracles. They said, what, what is the source of his power to do these miracles? You see the difference there. They're not saying he didn't do miracles. They clearly saw his authority to do them. They said he must have the power of Beelzebub. That's a different argument than the argument modern people make. And if modern people know the Jesus, that people who met Jesus better, I'd, I'm just like, there's some chronological snobbery happening here where you think you're like above and beyond humans who used to live and actually met this guy and saw what he did. Every account, the, the, the historians are totally unanimous, whether they're Christian or secular, that Jesus was a miracle worker. So you, you can't just say that he's a liar. You have to look at Jesus, like Matthew 11. Just go tell John what you see and hear. Look at the leper, look at the lame, look at the mute and the blind and the dead, and go tell him. He's not a liar because he's doing some stuff. Well, maybe he's a lunatic. That's, that's fair. That seems to be what people in his day sort of thought. This guy's blasphemy. Now, if you wanted a lunatic who claimed to be divine, you could probably go find one at Lakeside. Right? No doubt. In all seriousness, you could go find someone who claimed to be divine. You're like, that's not special to claim to be divine. But the difference is... He's not just doing the thing and claiming it. He also has this amazing moral wisdom. Jesus is a great moral teacher, not just one. The teachings of Jesus are behind the movements of Desmond Tutu and Martin Luther King Jr. You think he's just a fool at Lakeside? <laughs> Even Gandhi, he says, I like your Christ. I believe in the teachings of Christ. Jesus was one of the great teachers of mankind. There was a Muslim teacher. When he was reading the Sermon on the Mount, he, quote, he could not keep his he could not keep back the tears. It's like, he, he's just not the lunatic, Clark Pinnock. Was he deluded about his greatness, a paranoid, unintentional deceiver, a schizophrenic? Again, the skill and the depth of his teachings support the case only for his total mental soundness. If only we were as sane as he. 
So maybe there's a modern version of this. See, modern people, we love to kind of point at narcissism, especially with people in power. So let me just explore, was Jesus a narcissist? Lewis, in his book, Miracles, he says there's this real kind of conundrum, the discrepancy, he calls it, between the depth of his sanity and, let me add, the shrewdness of his moral teaching and the rampant megalomania which must lie behind his theological teaching unless he is indeed God. What do we do with this? Well, you could just say that he's a megalomaniac. He's a narcissist. I was looking at uh, Chuck DeGroat's work on when narcissism comes to church, and he says there's four big categories of narcissism. Be on the lookout. Let's take a look at Jesus through this lens. The first one is grandiosity. Grandiosity is where you think so highly of yourself that you don't even notice the other people because they're all beneath you. But Jesus doesn't overlook the small and the insignificant ones. He seems to go out of his way, in contrast to all his disciples, to notice them. The first thing he does is to go touch a leper. Grandiose. He then moves to the child. He's putting children in his lap, and he's like, this is the greatest in the kingdom. He is the opposite of grandiose. The second category of narcissism is entitlement. Entitlement is where, like, there's a different set of rules for me than there is for you. You serve me, not the other way around. And certainly, we serve Jesus. But Jesus is the one who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We'll look at that text next week. Unwilling to go low, unwilling to serve, Jesus constantly went low. If the teachings are to be believed, his whole incarnation is a movement of going low. You have different rules for me than you? No. Jesus, famously, is the one who kept all the rules. It's like he, he doesn't, ha he has no entitlement. Even if he's God, he still lets it go. He didn't think equality with God something to be grasped. The third category of narcissism is attention seeking. Certainly, Jesus gained a lot of attention. But if you look at his ministry, he was hidden for 30 years. Nobody knew this guy. And every time he healed someone, he said, don't tell anybody. <laughs> it's the opposite of, of what a narcissist would do. When they wanted to crown him king, he just fled. He got out of the way. Bruner, he says, he had this traditional submissive scriptural obedience. Jesus will not storm Israel with his messianic claim. He will not quietly at its door, leper by leper, little by little. The fourth piece of narcissism today is a lack of empathy. And yet Jesus is constantly moved to tears, gutted with compassion for the small people, the overlooked people, for the insignificant people, people like you and me. He's not only wise and powerful, he is lowly and loving. It won't do to call him a liar, it won't do to call him a lunatic, it's certainly not a narcissist. And so that leaves one option to us, as Lewis says. He's got to be the Lord. And if he has all authority, then perhaps this is actually really good news. Not because he lets us all off the hook and says, anything goes. But instead because he sees every one of us in our brokenness. He sees the chapters that we've tried to write on our own. And he says, can I, can I reauthor that one with you? 
I've got some edits that have way more grace and mercy than you can imagine. I see you when you felt unseen. I can heal you when you felt broken. He says, and this isn't just for you. I'm doing this for the whole world. Every system from the world and others and the self all the way back to, to the Father. He says, I can put it all back together. You see, when Jesus claims all authority, I get that you want to be suspicious. And you want to say, I don't know if he gets to say. Maybe I get to pick and choose what he tells me is right and wrong. But the truth is, we want desperately somebody to have all authority. And this is the kind of person we want to have it. Somebody who is gentle and lowly and loving and yet capable of doing all the work of justice to put us back together. So what do we do with the author of life? <laughs> you just go to him. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, it shows that Jesus is like a new Moses. Like Moses, he was born under a wicked king. Like Moses, the king was killing the sons of Israel. Like Moses, he was taken into Egypt to escape. Like Moses, he was baptized in the water. Like Moses, he was guided by the Spirit into the wilderness. Like Moses, he went on, on a mountain to preach. And then, like Moses, he delivered God's people from the sea. He provided bread in the wilderness for the people. He's a new Moses. But Jesus is better than Moses. <laughs> because Jesus is the author of life. It says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And it says when he speaks, his words are like the house on a rock. One scholar says they breathe resurrection. They are alive with enabling power. He has the power to give you life. We don't just listen to Jesus because we have to. We listen to Jesus because he's the author of our stories. There's no one else to go to who has the words of eternal life. Can I just invite you to, to pray as we go to him just for a minute? And we'll do this again in our groups at some point this month. But could you just close your eyes and, and pray and just go to him? Would you take a minute and just tell him, in, just silently in your mind, how you see his authority, his words and his deeds, his kingship? Just recognize his authority. Bow before him, if not literally, then at least in your mind's eye. Wouldn't you go to that king and then just ask for his help? Jesus, will you help us to see the brokenness outside us? Would you help us to see the brokenness you want to put back together? Jesus, would you help us to see the brokenness inside of us? The insecurities and the anxieties, the unbelief. Would you ask Jesus, Jesus, would you help me by writing a new chapter? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life.
Lord Jesus, would you break down walls where people feel excluded? Where people feel guilty and ashamed? The fractures in our families? friendships the sickness the death the sin that won't go away systems of our government, the gravity of poverty, Lord Jesus, we need you and your authority. I need you. Would you take a moment just in your mind and just give him praise for the rescue that he has done for you at the cross. Glory be to God the Father. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever, world without end. Amen.